You're listening to Value Judgments. My name is Eric Matheson. This episode is about suicide, and it can be hard to think about suicide, but it's a conversation we need to be having. My guest in this episode is Alexandre Barry, Associate Professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Ottawa. He's the author of Undoing Suicidism, a trans-queer crip approach to rethinking assisted suicide. Alexandre argues that suicidal people are wrongly treated, to the point where he has coined a term, suicidism, to capture this mistreatment. Like sexism and racism, suicidism is a form of discrimination that not only mistreats suicidal people, but, he argues, fails to prevent suicides. Professor Berry argues for a different approach, which, as you'll hear, has implications for healthcare, suicide prevention, and medical assistance in dying. His book stands out because, as we discuss, Alexandre has had suicidal periods in his life, which he discusses in his book. For this interview, Alexandre and I agreed on the questions beforehand, which meant that we were able to have a more focused conversation. Once again, his book is Undoing Suicidism. Here's my conversation with Alexandre Paris. Can you tell us about how this book came about for you? Yeah, for sure. So I would say that my desire to write a book on suicide and assisted suicide comes from both a personal and an academic interest. I've been a suicidal person since the age of 12. And even though there are periods in my life, such as currently, when I'm feeling better, suicidality never really disappears from my life. Uh, much of my work, such as my work in trans, disability, crip, mad studies, is anchored in my various marginalized identities. And my writing and research helped me to better understand and uh, my lived experience and to connect it to a broader social political, legal context. So I guess that my interest in suicide comes from this need to understand my own subjective experience of suicidality and to situate it in a larger social political context. In terms of my academic interests, I've been driven in my career to try to understand how various social movements and their related fields of study often, despite uh, unfortunately their best intentions, reproduce forms of marginalization, discrimination, oppression towards certain people. In this case, I was interested in how social movements who are very keen to put forward the voices of the first people concerned nevertheless quickly dismiss the voices, ideas, and claims of suicidal people and even reproduce oppression towards them. Also, I was astonished to learn that no concept existed to name the oppression of suicidal people until I coined the term suicidism. I was disappointed about this lack, and that disappointment was the spark for my book. So I hope, um, and my hope is that my book will provide the tools to help us name our oppression as suicidal people, to connect with suicidal people, um, and to build solidarities with the other social movements. Yeah, one of the ways that your book is different from most academic books is that you're open about being a suicidal person in it. Uh, how did you decide to integrate those experiences and was that difficult to do? Yeah, indeed, it was. So generally, I'm quite open about uh, being trans, bisexual, disabled, or a mad person in my work. However, until recently, I remained silent about my suicidality, a form of self-silencing and self-censorship I discussed in the book through the notion of epistemic injustice and testimonial smothering that many suicidal people experience. In other words, in previous publication, I concealed information about my suicidality to make my arguments more credible to my audience, as well as to avoid generating uh, panic reactions from editors, reviewers, colleagues, uh, students, and readers in general. Like most suicidal people, I was, and I still am, afraid that revealing my suicidality would be used to discredit my arguments, taint other people's perspective about me, or trigger a series of negative consequences such as being hospitalized or drugged against my will. However, in my book, I decided, as you mentioned, to be more vocal about my suicidality. While I was scared to integrate those personal experiences at first, I thought it was necessary to do so since I am calling for the creation of an anti-suicidist movement, a movement by and for suicidal people. 
the disability rights movement slogan says nothing about us without us therefore i thought that to build solidarities between suicidal people and to promote what i call in the book a suicidal epistemological standpoint or in other words to promote the uh, what i to promote the, the perspectives of the first people concerned, revealing my own suicidality was necessary. And I believe that this personal tone in my work and in the book elicits trust from other suicidal people who often talk to me or write to me about their own suicidality. Um, so you've mentioned the term suicidism, which is a term you coined. For people who are not familiar with your work, can you tell us a bit more about that term suicidism? Um, and you also explain in your book that suicidism has complex relationships with other systems of oppression. So can you explain some of those complex relationships? For sure, yeah. So suicidism refers to an oppressive system that functions at the normative, medical, legal, social, political, economic, and epistemic levels, a system in which suicidal people experience multiple forms of injustice and violence, such as discrimination, stigmatization, exclusion, pathologization, and incarceration. And our society is replete with horrific stories of suicidal people facing inhuman treatment after expressing their suicidal ideations in order to save their lives at all costs, from being hospitalized and drugged against their will, to being handcuffed and shot by police, to losing their jobs, to having their parental rights revoked, to even being kicked off university campuses. Because of these negative suicidist consequences, suicidal people remain silent and complete their suicide without reaching out for help to anyone. As I always say, every single completed suicide is the proof that what we are doing currently is not working because each of those people did not call for help before completing their suicide. And these stories illustrate that, despite the supportive discourses surrounding suicidality, suicidal people who call for help do not find the promised support. And worse, I argue that suicide prevention services do more harm than good. Simply put, suicide prevention often increases deaths by suicide rather than prevents them. And this is especially true for marginalized suicidal people, such as indigenous, racialized, poor, queer, trans, disabled, neurodivergent, or mad individuals for whom suicide intervention often increases the racist, colonialist, classist, sexist, heterosexist, cisgenderist, ableist, or sanist violence they experience. To give only a few examples, emergency services and police officers won't react the same way if they are called for a suicide crisis, if the person involved is, let's say, a white woman living in a wealthy neighborhood versus if the person is a black man living in a poor neighborhood, or a neurodivergent person who, in the midst of the intervention, panics. And many researchers, including uh, Susan Stephan, have shown that suicide by cops, or what we can literally call murders by cops, happens when police is called to respond to suicide crisis, and particularly when it comes to marginalized communities. So in other words, suicidism is interlocked with all those other forms of oppression, such as classism, racism, colonialism, etc., and some community organizations, such as Trans Lifeline, who work with trans and non-binary people, argue, as I do in my work, that non-consensual rescue of suicidal people intensifies suicidality due to the inhuman and harmful treatment imposed on marginalized subjects by the police, healthcare providers, and many other parties. In short, rather than finding the comfort, support, and care that they are looking for, a majority of marginalized people experience discrimination, microaggressions, trauma, and even incarceration by reaching out for help, which seems counterproductive and unacceptable. The thesis I put forth is that suicidal people are oppressed by suicidism and that the oppression they experience remains under-theorized. 
And I think it's important to give this oppression a name because naming the structural violence we experience as a group, in this case as suicidal people, collectivizing and politicizing our common experience of violence allows us, as is the case with all other marginalized groups, to denounce the systemic oppression we are experiencing on a daily level and to stop seeing it as individual problem to solve through through cures. As I explain in my book with the help of the framework of epistemic injustices as coined by Miranda Fricker, not having terms and concept with which to name our oppression and struggles constitutes a form of hermeneutical injustice. Our oppression as suicidal people starts with this epistemic scarcity surrounding suicidism to the point of not even having a term with which to denounce it, to politicize it. So suicidism is the word I sought for years until I coined it in 2016. And it's the concept many of us have been searching for as evidenced by texts written by self-identified suicidal scholars in response to my work. The necessity for this concept is also evidenced by the numerous emails I've received over the years from suicidal people telling me that they had been thinking about the oppression suicidal people face, but did not have a term to name it. Many suicidal individuals <clears throat> so really contact me very often to... Uh, share their stories with me and their testimonials and all the, you know, harsh experiences they are facing in their everyday life. Since the publication of my book, those emails keep multiplying and they testify, I believe, to this deep need we have to create multiple theoretical tools and concepts such as those I propose in the book to help combat suicidism and, of course, its uh, negative consequences on suicidal people. Um, so in the first chapter of the book, you have this nice framework. You give these four theoretical frameworks of conceptualizing suicide. Um, could you briefly describe what those four frameworks are and how your intervention is unique? For sure. So in the book, I propose a typology of four models of suicidality. Uh, there is the medical and psychological one, the social model, the public health model, and social justice model. First, the medical model focuses not only on physiological pathologies coming from genetics or neurobiology, but also on pathologies of the mind or the heart, so for example, mental and emotional health issues. In the medical model, the problem of suicidality is situated totally or partially in the body or in the mind of the person. Uh, second, influenced by the work of sociologists, the social model of suicide, instead of situating the problem of suicidality solely or primarily in the individual, identifies society and its dysfunction as the culprits. The social model aims to identify patterns, recurrences, and tendencies between suicidality and social factors such as economic crisis, wars, social values, familial relationships, marginalized identities, or cultural representations to understand and, of course, prevent suicidality. Third, falling between the two previous models, the public health model, also known as the biopsychosocial model sometimes, is anchored in public health epidemi epidemiological approaches and favors evidence-based research and statistical data. This model bridges individualistic and social approaches to promote population health. Adopted by many healthcare professionals, this model currently informs international suicide prevention guidelines and strategies. And fourth, the social justice model um, that I use a lot in the book um, is the social model, uh, social justice model of suicide, and it has been put forward by critical suicidologists in the last decade. In opposition to a psychocentric and individualistic approach to suicidality, this model focuses on the collective, structural, and systemic, social, cultural, and political factors that influence suicidality. Uh, 
It's a model that goes beyond the social model and the public health model by not only taking into consideration environmental and social factors that impact suicidality, but also by being politically engaged and committed to social justice, hence its name. Many scholars who adopt this model are also working at the intersection of other anti-oppressive fields of study, such as critical race studies, queer studies, trans studies, and so on. So what I show in my work is that despite numerous differences, these models arrive at the same conclusion. Suicide is not a good option for suicidal people. As a result, not only do these models fail to recognize the suicide oppression faced by suicidal people, but they also perpetuate it through a suicidist preventionist script. And one of the most perverse effects of the preventionist script is the silencing of suicidal people. Indeed, they are encouraged to share their suicidal ideations, but are discouraged from pursuing suicide as a solution. In other words, suicidal ideation can be explored, but suicide itself remains taboo. What quantitative studies show is that suicide statistics remain relatively stable and have not improved significantly over the past decades. So despite multiple strategies and billions of dollars invested in outreach initiatives, studies show that those most determined to die carry out their suicidal plans without reaching out for help. In some our prevention strategies based on those various models do not work. Sim simple as that. So I'm not saying that current discourses, policies, interventions, and suicide prevention programs or suicide hotlines based on this preventionist script never help anyone. Neither am I condemning suicidal people who search for cures, be they medical or social. I simply want to highlight how all these models cannot imagine anything other than prevention to help suicidal people. Indeed, in the various models of suicidality, as well as in the views of right-to-die activists to promote assisted death for older, sick, or disabled individuals, suicidal people must be kept alive at all times. So in all these contradictory but complementary interpretations, suicidality needs to be eradicated, erased. And in the few cases where suicide is not seen as a negative action to be absolutely avoided, suicide is presented most of the time as a negative right, that is, a personal decision with which we should not interfere as a society, but not as a positive right that should be supported by the state and society. In my model of suicide, I propose that suicide become a positive right. And I can come back to this uh, idea of suicide as a positive right later during the podcast, but I contend that as surprising as it sounds, allowing assisted suicide for suicidal people might be the only way to reestablish the confidence and trust of suicidal people and break the silence they experience. And while the primary goal of my model of assisted suicide is to provide more human, respectful, and compassionate support for suicidal people rather than to save lives at all costs, one of my hypotheses is that my approach that supports assisted suicide for suicidal people might actually save more lives than current prevention strategies do. And this is what makes my framework and approach so unique. In consulting more than 2,000 sources while writing my book, I have not found anyone who has ever, to my knowledge, proposed what I suggest in my work that is an explicit support of assisted suicide for suicidal people. So I'm interested in this idea that about how some suicides are legitimized and others are delegitimized. And one of the things that it makes me think of is that uh, most of the time in public discussions around assisted dying and in other contexts, uh, when we hear from groups that are claiming to ad advocate for disability rights, um, they overwhelmingly oppose assisted death for people with disabilities. Um, and so uh, can you tell me about this like the bigger picture of kind of how some suicides are legitimized and others aren't and then also that uh, around the 
disability social justice discourse um, in what ways that the, that that approach that we so often hear from is mistaken? Yes, for sure. So you're right. There are some forms of death and suicide that are legitimized and others that are delegitimized in our society. And this is crucial uh, in my book, this distinction and this uh, cleavage between the two. The exceptionalism regarding the suicidality of disabled, sick, or ill people in comparison with those regarded as able-bodied, healthy, and sane has framed the binary position between suicide and physician-assisted death, or what is sometimes called assisted death, voluntary euthanasia, or medical assistance in dying. And this exceptionalism has been long critiqued um, by disability activists and scholars. For example, Carol J. Gill dedicated several papers to what she calls selective suicide intervention that marginalizes disabled people based on the devaluation of their lives. Gill points out double standards about suicidality based on disability status. And so when an able-bodied individual expresses a wish to die, they are characterized as suicidal and targeted by suicide prevention interventions. But when this individual is disabled, the desire to die is recast as rational. Along the same line, I have argued in my work that there is an ontology of assisted suicide. That is, what assisted suicide is, its foundation on the forms of ableism and sanism, among other oppressive systems, and its basis in the systemic dismissal of the quality of life of disabled, sick, and ill people. And this ontology creates, as I discuss in an early article published in 2017 in the journal Somatechnics, two classes of suicidal subjects by considering disabled or ill people as legitimate subjects who should receive assistance in dying and suicidal people as illegitimate subjects who must be kept alive. Although disability activists and scholars denounced the double standard and exceptionalism about the suicidality of disabled, sick, and ill people, they do not question, unfortunately, the postulate according to which the second class of suicidal subject is targeted by an injunction to live and to futurity and what I call compulsory aliveness. In my book, I show how Suicidism is therefore linked to ableism and sanism, that is the oppression towards, towards people considered insane, quote unquote. And I argue that suicidism makes some people's desire for death abnormal and inconceivable. In contrast, we legitimize assisted suicide for those cast as, quote unquote, unproductive and undesirable based on dominant norms such as disabled, sick, ill, or old people. In their case, their desire for death is considered normal and rebranded as medical assistance in dying. However, suicidal, pe people's, desire, suicidal people's desire for death is cast as irrational, crazy, mad, insane, or alienated and they are stripped of their decision-making capacity. In other words, from an ableist, sanist, ageist, and even capitalist perspective, people who are seen as unproductive or a burden in our society based on dominant norms are supported to die through medical assistance in dying, while suicidal people who are seen as having productive futures are excluded from these laws and forced to stay alive. So my work asks the following question, and it's crucial um, in my argument. Why are we offering assistance in dying to disabled, sick, ill, or old people who, in the vast majority of cases, don't want to die, but ask for better living conditions and are driven to despair by the lack of help, while those who do want to die, such as suicidal people, are denied any assistance and forced to die alone in atrocious conditions or are literally forced to live. So to go back to your own question, I would say I would not say that disability activists and scholars in disability studies are wrong or mistaken in their approach. 
I would say that they are right to denounce the double standards that underlie current medical assistance in dying laws. However, I believe that blocking access to assisted suicide for suicidal people is not the way to eliminate ableism. And this is what they want to target, ableism. So to put it another way, reproducing suicide is violence and discrimination by leaving suicidal people to fend for themselves and die alone does nothing to resolve the ableist violence experienced by disabled people. So in part two of your, of your book, you talk about assisted suicide or assisted dying. Um, it's a very complex topic. Um, and just want to, you say at one point, um, quote, I believe that queering, transing, cripping, and maddening assisted suicide involves working towards the creation of real accessibility to assisted suicide for suicidal people, such as through suicide affirmative health care. That's the quote. Uh, can you speak to how this is based on your anti-oppressive approach and what it means to be suicide affirmative by accompanying suicidal people through their journeys? Yes, and <clears throat> maybe the first thing I would like to say is that while my approach to suicide and assisted suicide is radically different, as you can hear it, um, it's not intended to encourage suicide. On the contrary, I'm hopeful it will reduce suicide rates. Second, I would like to explain what I mean by using the verbs queering and trancing that you, know, you were referring to in your question. So for me, queering and trancing suicidality means allowing suicidal people to change the normative discourses on suicidality based on their own perspectives, needs, and goals. Queering and trancing suicidality blurs the, the boundaries between good and bad decisions about health, life, and death, between the rationality and the irrationality of certain actions, between positive and negative effects, and it means also questioning the usefulness of these binary categories altogether. To queer and trend suicidality makes it possible to resignify the negative meanings automatically attributed to it to allow different narratives to emerge. Queering and trancing suicide also allow to unpack the idea that the best way to help suicidal people is through prevention. Additionally, cripping and maddening assisted suicide allow me to conceptualize a form of assisted suicide that is not based on forms of ableism, sanism, ageism, and other isms, as is currently the case. One of the main ideas of my book is indeed to theorize suicide as a positive right, I was referring to it earlier, that would involve potentially supporting suicidal people in their quest for death through assisted suicide. My queer crip model of suicide and assisted suicide is meant to complement, not supersede, the fight against systemic oppressions that influence suicidality in marginalized groups. The support offered to suicidal people would be delivered through a suicide-affirmative approach and suicide-affirmative healthcare. My suicide-affirmative approach is inspired by trans-affirmative approaches to rethink the care offered to trans people not based on forms of control and gatekeeping, but based on supporting their autonomy. My approach is anchored in anti-oppressive values, intersectionality, self-determination, informed consent, and harm reduction. A suicide-affirmative approach does not mean pushing suicidal people to suicide, just as the goal of the trans-affirmative approach is not to push a person to transition, of course. Rather, it means that instead of trying to cure trans people of their transness or suicidal people of their suicidality, we develop safer spaces in which we can examine their suicidality with them and discuss a wide variety of options. My approach proposes to shift from a preventionist and curative logic to a logic of accompaniment for suicidal people to help them to make the best informed decisions about life and death, a form of support that could be indeed life-affirming and death-affirming. In my approach, the priority, and this is very important, so the priority is the suicidal person, not life itself. And this shift from prevention to accompaniment empowers suicidal people. 
similar to a transaffirmative approach, the suicide affirmative approach offers care and support through an informed consent model, taking for granted that the expert in the decision to transition, and in this case from life to death, is the person making the decision. In that sense, I work toward a real accessibility to assisted suicide and not an access based on exclusive criteria that are ableist, sanist, or ages. My hypothesis is that a suicide affirmative approach, despite this greater accessibility to assisted suicide, might actually save more lives than current prevention strategies, as I was referring uh, to earlier. Indeed, rather than being forced to die in secrecy by completing their suicide without consulting anyone due to fear of experiencing suicidist consequences, suicidal people in my non-stigmatizing approach would have the chance to speak freely and to benefit from an accompaniment process to reach and inform decisions about their desire to live or die. Numerous suicidal people have written to tell me that they completely agree with uh, my arguments. I think changing the approach to suicide in this way is perhaps one of the most radical aspects of your book. Um, do you think there's any possibility of society moving toward this direction, or do you think we'll ever get there? <laughs> this is the $1 million question. Um, I often say that we are regarding the, the theorization of suicidism and the rights and recognition of suicidal people where trans people were regarding trans rights and recognition in the 1930s or 1920s. You know, Indeed, everything needs to be imagined, theorized, and transformed, as was the case for trans people when transitioning was not even an option. My work constitutes a first step in this direction. It allows us to open our hearts, our imaginations when it comes to the possibility of envisioning suicide and assisted suicide from a different point of view, from the standpoint of suicidal people. My queer crip model of assisted suicide is meant to open up our imagination to what our discourses and practices might look like if we begin to think about suicide and assisted suicide within an anti-suicidist, intersectional, and transformative justice framework. And I think it's hard to imagine that because it's so radically different, as you mentioned. But I believe that we need to hope that things could change. And despite the theoretical theoretical core of my book, I can already see how it touches people's hearts and minds. The emails I receive from suicidal people all around the world give me hope and the feeling that some things are starting to shift slowly but surely. And I also receive emails from physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, activists, saying that my work resonates with their vision, values, philosophy, experience, and even practice. I'm currently a consultant for a few organizations to help them to implement an anti-suicidist approach in their suicide intervention plans and guidelines. And there are already some community organizations such as Autisme Soutien, a peer help group by and for autistic and neurodivergent people that have decided to embrace this anti-suicidist approach in the online support they offer to people in distress. I also think that the more the book will circulate, the more we will see concrete applications of the framework and approach I propose. The dissemination of my framework on suicidism has already started in various mediums, such as students using it as a theoretical framework for, uh, in their thesis, or people discussing in non-academic ways what suicidism means on blogs and social media. I saw that on Twitter and other uh, social media like that. I also recently gave an interview to a playwright who is doing documentary theater, a form of theater that integrates documentary materials, interviews, and so on into a play. And this person, whose father died by suicide, fell in love with the ideas I'm proposing and wants to educate the general public through the art through the art form about the necessity to change our perceptions, discourses, and interventions regarding suicide and assisted suicide to better support not only suicidal people themselves, but also their families. 
in a year or two from now. So some excerpts from that interview will probably make their way into the play and an actor will play my role. So it's the first time that my academic ideas and concept will be transformed into an artistic project. And I'm quite excited at the prospect of seeing this play and hearing comments from the public. Um, so all this, I believe, is a sign that some things start to change. Yeah, that's great. Um, so Canada, as you know, uh, just recently announced that they're postponing uh, assisted dying based solely on a mental illness uh, diagnosis. Um, various other countries have been considering or discussing extensions of their laws uh, to people who uh, request assisted dying based solely on mental illness. So what distinguishes your position from the extension of medical assistance in dying to people with mental or psychological suffering? It's a very good question because often people conf uh, are confused about my position and what you know some national context and some laws uh, propose and uh, put forward. So it's important to mention that in all national contexts that allow some forms of medical assistance in dying, suicidal people are excluded. So only people who are physically or sometimes, as you just mentioned, mentally ill can have access to these procedures. And these laws specify that no suicidal person should ever be supported in their desire to die. It's at the core of all those laws. So even though I mentioned earlier the possibility of offering assisted suicide for suicidal people, I want to make it clear that my approach is radically distinct from that of offering medical assistance in dying for people for whom mental illness is the sole condition of their request. In my work, following disability activists and academics who denounce the ableism and sanism underlying medical assistance in dying, I advocate for the abolition of these discriminatory laws on medical assistance in dying that allow assisted suicide only for quote-unquote special populations based on dominant norms of who should live or die. And I would like to see the creation of new laws and policies surrounding assisted suicide for all adults who have a stable desire to die, including suicidal people. So in other words, my approach is not based on a physical or mental illness or disability diagnosis as the criterion for allowing assisted suicide. In my work, I also mobilize the tools from trans studies to reflect on the transition from life to death. The ontology of assisted suicide contributes to the hierarchization of real and false reasons for suicide, leading to the authorization of the former and the prevention of the later. Latter. As we historically as was historically the case for transness, the centrality of a diagnosis or of trouble attested to by a medical professional is crucial to the procedure's justification. As trans people often transform their narratives for healthcare professionals to get access to the care they need, suicidal people may be tempted to modify their narratives to make them fit into this ontology of assisted suicide. As is the case for trans people, who should be allowed to transition regardless of their motivation? I contend in my work that many reasons lie behind the desire to die and that they are all equally valid. The medical industrial complex should not determine which motives and reasons justify transitions, including the transitions from life to death. However, the pressure to conform to this dominant narrative about assisted suicide is so powerful that even in right-to-die discourses, the possibility of justifying assisted suicide outside the dominant ontological script of disability, sickness, illness, madness, or old age seems completely absent. And some, like trans subjects, forced to frame their need to transition by using a cisnormative script Suicidal subjects are forced to frame their desire to die by using an ableist, sanist, ageist, and suicidist ontological script where disability and suffering must be put forth, sanity and rationality must be proven, and suicidality must be dismissed 
as irrational. When I read your book, one thing that uh, came up for me and which I think reflects a lot of the discourse around assisted dying is about decision-making capacity or the ability of people to make decisions in the right sort of way um, rationally or um, you know they've reflected on well, what the options are and uh, their their choice is informed in some way and uh, a lot of the uh, concerns about assisted dying for people with mental illnesses is that I think partially informed by concerns about that people do not have the capacity to make that kind of decision it's like out of their hands in some way um, so, so I'm wondering to what extent does decision-making capacity affect your views about suicide? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, as discussed by authors in MAD studies, people with mental health issues or MAD people are often perceived as irrational or incompetent legally or otherwise to make important decisions. Their perceived or actual mental health issues and mental disabilities are used to deny their credibility as speakers and their legitimacy in expressing their wishes. In ableist, sanist, and cogneticist regimes, as I call them in my work with my colleague Marjorie Silverman on dementia, mental capacity, decision-making capacity, and autonomy are skewed based on cognonormative standards and narrow perceptions of what constitutes an autonomous, rational, and capable subject. Only those who are categorized as mentally, emotionally, and cognitively stable are deemed competent enough to make crucial decisions about their life and death. In his critical analysis of suicide, uh, Ian Marsh contends that madness and insanity and suicide were construed together in the 19th century. While Marsh does not theorize suicidism per se and therefore does not say that an analysis of madness would be incomplete without reference to suicidality, based on this historical demonstration, I believe that suicidism and sanism are interlocked and cannot be studied in silo. I argue that decision-making capacity of suicidal people is denied based on ableist and sanist conceptualizations of competence and rationality. Mental capacity is one of the elements that that makes the question of access to assisted suicide for mentally ill people so controversial. You mentioned it in your question. We saw it in the last few weeks in the media in Canada. And from a suicidist and sanist point of view, the simple fact of expressing suicidal ideations can itself lead to one's mental capacity being questioned or revoked making it impossible to refuse non-consensual treatment. In many countries, mental capacity refers to the, as we know, the ability to appreciate pertinent information, express choices, and understand the medical implications of certain treatments decisions. In theory, so, mental incompetence is not broadly attributed to an individual, but determined in specific situation, case by case, based on each specific decision this person makes. In practice, however, some individuals are deemed globally mentally incompetent and treated accordingly, often based on sanest and cogniticist presumptions. In other words, there is a disparity between the law and the application of the law in Canada. And suicidal people are among the groups often deemed globally mentally incompetent, along with people living with dementia or mental disability. Many authors have worked to deconstruct the association between mental illness and incompetence in relation to suicidality. While mental illness may temporarily impact decision-making and mental capacity, of course, mental illness does not equal mental incompetence in all situations. So the logic of accompaniment I propose towards suicidal people rests upon a harm reduction approach and an informed consent model that addresses the problem of dismissing suicidal people's rationality as it shifts the decision-making from the gatekeeper's hands to suicidal people's hands. So the suicidal person would be accompanied to make decisions that would then be supported by healthcare providers. I want to reiterate that there are no good or bad reasons for wanting to die. There are just reasons, a multitude of reasons, all valid, 
all legitimate and all relevant, as long, I believe, as they have been acknowledged and considered from different angle when making a truly informed decision. And this is exactly where the current approaches to suicide and assisted suicide fail suicidal people because no space allows honest conversations about suicide, which would let us discuss on multiple occasions and with various peoples the fatal decision we are about to carry out. So when people cannot reach out, they are, I believe, denied the option of making a truly informed decision. In my definition, this denial does not constitute care or support and reduces people's decision-making capacity. Uh, a core concept in the book that you talk about is the injunction to live and to futurity. Can you speak to ways this concept surfaces in issues of suicidism, as well as its deeper negative impacts in more general ways on marginalized groups? Yeah, for sure. So the concept of the injunction to live and to futurity has been a core concept in my work, in fact, since 2016, and a key concept uh, of my book. And I've been inspired by two authors, so Anne Svetkovich and Zore Bayatrizi. And even, even though none of these authors proposes the notion of the injunction to live and to futurity per se, Svetkovich discusses the moral imperatives to stay alive in her book, Depression. And Bayatrizi mentions the idea of a life sentence in the title of her book. In my book, I explain how this injunction to live and to futurity is part of a larger normative system which I call compulsory aliveness. Simply put, the injunction to live and to futurity aims to impose life and a future on everyone, except those cast by dominant ageist, ableist, and sanist norms as unproductive in our neoliberal economy. If you are young, are otherwise physically healthy, and specifically if you attempt to end your life, emergency personnel will save you even against your will. In fact, all discourses, institutions, practices, and interventions are incurred in this injunction to live and to futurity in order to prevent suicides from happening. Unsurprisingly, many marginalized groups are overrepresented, unfortunately, in statistics of suicidality, which include suicidal ideations, suicide attempts, and in some cases, completed suicides. For example, some studies show that trans and non-binary people have between 8 and 20 times more chances than the rest of the population to experience suicidality. What it means is that many marginalized groups have crucial needs to help them cope with the distress they experience and violence they experience, but their support needs remain unmet through current suicide prevention services, as is generally also the case for suicidal people. As I have shown in my work, the majority of current prevention services fails to reach suicidal people, especially those who are most determined to die or who belong to marginalized groups. And this is supported by a great deal of research demonstrating that suicidal people, particularly those from marginalized groups and those determined to die, do not feel safe to ask for help. The horrific experiences that some people go through as a result of disclosing their suicidal ideations are so difficult that many say, as is the case in Radford and colleagues' study on trans suicidal people, that they would prefer die than to seek help and deal with negative consequences. So it's quite paradoxical. In other words, suicide prevention measures that aim to save lives at all costs and that are guided by this injunction to live into futurity have huge costs in the lives of marginalized suicidal individuals. Following some observations made by Trans Lifeline, to use this example among many, I identified a series of negative consequences associated with non-consensual rescues based on this injunction to live, and those negative consequences affect trans communities. For example, non-consensual rescues often out trans people to their relatives and families, and such forms of outing can lead to further rejection, violence, uh, expulsion from the home, etc., those rescues often involve fees, for example, ambulance, for trans people who are already overrepresented in statistics on poverty. 
Additionally, involuntary hospitalization and histories of mental health issues, particularly for suicidality, may negatively impact access to transaffirmative health care by delaying or blocking care. Furthermore, interactions with the healthcare system and social services often include stigmatization and violence. So it's, it's, um, it's quite obvious in all studies. And finally, those rescues break the trust of potential hotline callers who may fear that the operators will initiate a non-consensual rescue. So in other words, a hotline that supports coercive suicide prevention measures, which is the case with 99% of hotlines in Canada, does not elicit trust or confidence. And some, in addition to their suicidality, suicidal people, particularly those who belong to marginalized groups, may experience more distress in their interactions with prevention services. So paradoxically, the injunction to live and to futurity imposed on suicidal subjects increases suicidality instead of reducing it. What would you say are the three most important messages of your book, as well as concrete takeaways? Yeah, regarding the three key messages, I would first say that it's important to understand that suicidal people, like any other marginalized groups, experience structural oppression. So again, it's important to start listening to suicidal people and realize that prevention discourses and interventions, despite their best intentions, often makes things worse for suicidal people, particularly those who belong to marginalized communities. A third key message is that giving positive rights to suicidal people, that is, providing them the support they need and facilitating access to a renewed form of assisted suicide might in fact be a much more effective way to prevent unnecessary deaths and to truly recognize and respect suicidal people's needs. Regarding the three concrete takeaways of my book, the first one is that if we are really committed to helping suicidal people, particularly those most determined to die and who currently complete their suicide, we need to first acknowledge that we do almost everything wrong. Because clearly it's not working. The second takeaway is that suicidal people have important messages to convey. So the general public, decision makers, researchers, practitioners, and so on should start paying attention to what they have to say and consider them experts of what they experience and what they need. And the last takeaway is that despite the multiplicity of prevention strategies that have been implemented in various countries, decade after decade, despite a few ebbs and flows in the statistics on suicide, we don't see a significant decrease of suicide rates. So again, what it indicates is that what we have been doing so far doesn't work and that it might be time to try solutions outside the box like the one I'm proposing in this book. Alexandre, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Value Judgments is produced by me, Eric Matheson. If you like the show, please tell your friends and subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify. If you really like the show, you can become a paid subscriber at valuejudgments.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.